Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the In Real Deep Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Semino, and with me as sometimes is a very special guest. More frequently than sometimes these days, he's coming back very often, and that's because we are doing a crime series. We are going through crime movies, and for that series, we have brought in Dr. Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Stephen, and just... Just give me one. I just got one more Vincent Hanna take. Just if you would let me just get one more Vincent Hanna take in, please. I'll give you that take, buddy. Say it. Use your words. Uh, no, no. You know what? Let's save it for Heat 3. <laughs> We're doing another Heat episode. <laughs> That's a lot of Heat, but if we got to do it, we got to do it. I support you and your choices and all your desires. <laughs> Before we get to that third Heat episode, though, we are talking about Seven, the 1995 film the psychological crime thriller, as Wikipedia calls it, certainly all those things. A very intense movie, a movie that when I first saw it back in, let's say, 2003 or something like that, 2002, I thought it was the best movie I'd ever seen. Uh, I loved it very much. I thought it was tremendous. And I admittedly was nervous this time when we sat down to watch it because I hadn't seen it in so long. Because I just didn't remember a lot of the beats. And because I thought that maybe a lot of the movie rested on the twist and just the the long monologues from the now disgraced Kevin Spacey, the fact that it's a cop movie in this context of police brutality and systemic racism. Like there was just a lot of things that I didn't think would necessarily hold up so well in 2020. What I was impressed to see, what I really, really enjoyed is that the movie is a, there's not a lot of Spacey, which is great for both the movie and for the context of now, but also that it is very much about crime and society and evil deeds and insanity without leaning too much on the acts of police officers. Obviously, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt are police officers in the film, but it's not about them as cops. They're To me, they were more like, it's weird to make this distinction, but they were more investigators, they were more detectives without the necessarily the cop element involved they were seeking out this information they were seeking out this case and they were sort of trying to wrap their heads around what even was going on around them where they fit in and and how their own philosophies on crime and the world played into it and i thought that's a great touch and to me that made it a lot more of a evergreen type movie and one that i really really enjoyed even now in 2020 I have to say, I, this movie not only held up well since 1995, I thought it was better uh, this time around. I, I guess I saw it for the first time in high school, uh, and I just don't think I had the mental bandwidth back then to to address or to think about a lot of the themes that, that came through this time at 34 years old. Uh, but before we even get started, Steve, I, w- I just want to get your take first on, um, you know, how did you think William Fickner did in this movie? What was your, what are your Fickner takes from this movie? Obviously, the fact that there's no Fickner at all is disgusting, and I'm sure. All right, and that's the end of the podcast. We'll see you next time, everybody. <laughs> I'm sure David Fincher meant to bring in his similar namesake, William Fickner, and just couldn't find a role, you know was trying with all his might to squeeze Will into, or Billy, whatever he goes by, I have no idea. Though I'm a close personal friend, he's William to me, you know, I don't, I don't, we don't, we're not very informal, we're all business, but I, I, it's a, it's disheartening that he couldn't be in this movie, but he's such a star of stage and screen, big and small, that I, you know, he, he, he was doing just fine, he didn't need seven, seven was a, would have been a blessing, but it wasn't a curse to not be in it. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm sure he goes by Colonel Willie Sharp. Um, (laughs) But getting back to uh, the movie itself, you know, in addition to being very impressed with how this whole thing was made the the second time I watched it with you the other night, 
I agree with your point overall that I think we were both surprised that calling this a crime movie is not exactly, you know, we remembered it more as a crime movie than it actually was. As you mentioned, it's really not about the criminal justice system. It's not about the concept of cops and robbers, good guys and bad guys. If anything, it uses these two police officers as narrators. Uh, these two police officers are narrating a story of moral bankruptcy within humanity as a whole, uh, rather than, you know, going through the procedural parts of a, a crime movie, cops and robbers movie, et cetera. And I think the, the most interesting question that is posed in this style of, you know, calling it a psychological thriller, a crime thriller, whatever, the interesting question that pops up that relates it to crime is the concept of sin. And now, obviously, he's bringing up the seven deadly sins, lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. But the question of how do these these sins and any sin whatsoever, how do they become law? How do they make it so that sin is equal to crime? Because it doesn't take a lot of, you know, a lot, a lot of thought to realize that not every sin is a crime and not every crime is a sin. Um, is it a sin for someone to steal food to feed their starving child? Well, no, it's not. But is it technically a crime? Sure, it is. Uh, it's not a crime to be greedy. It's not a crime to be gluttonous. Uh, but there is something morally that may you know, di differ from person to person on how one would define it. But we can all agree that there is something wrong about these things. But I do think the, the first and most interesting question this movie poses is, what is the difference between sin and crime? And often in our, I think, our society, we, we think the word sin is synonymous somehow with religion. And I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think one can feel sinful without having any belief in, in any sort of religion. So I, as I use the term sin, um, I am going to use that in a, in a context devoid of any religious connotation. So I think the, the root question, at least with the character, the, at least with the John Doe character, is he is looking at a society that has given a criminal justice system that is nominally for the preservation of some moral society and saying that it has completely failed and that uh, the criminal justice system or whatever systems of, of, uh, of governance of the society have failed society. And we are we have not paid enough attention attention to the sin of society. Uh, and in in this case, he's decided to take that role on to himself to be the punisher of sin rather than crime. That's a great I think there's a really good I think there's a great point there that I, that sort of ties into what I said. And I hadn't really thought about it until you just put it that way. But what Spacey does is is like we said, the, the acts of murder and such are obviously crimes. But. I think what and what and what does sort of take Pitt and Morgan Freeman's characters out of being cops is Spacey's yeah Spacey's crimes go so go beyond just right and beyond just the act of of criminality like you said they go to a deeper meaning there's obviously more going on and I think that helps the two characters the two cop characters transition into just more yeah like following the trail and figuring out what happens and putting the pieces together in a way that they would in a, in a deeper way than they'd even do for a murder or crime of other sorts like they start to step back and question the philosophy of, the philosophy of their choices and of the world's choices and all that because of what Spacey does and I just hadn't put 
too, dude. I, I would like I said, I was more just impressed that they like weren't being copy, but it's like it's obviously on purpose, and I think it's what Fincher and the writer Andrew Kevin Walker do so well is is force that step back and and make the questions bigger than just find this man who committed this crime and put him in this jail. Like that's just that's almost immediately or not immediately, but I'd say by the first half hour, that's like not even. You know, that, I mean, obviously they'd like to do that. That's the end goal, but it's about so much more than that. And it does it very quickly, and it and it elevates it above just being about chasing a bad guy. Yeah, it's it's uh, interesting to think about the overlap with the Dark Knight. I think you know we we had some overlap of the Dark Knight and Heat, which was kind of the style of it. And now there is a little bit of overlap between the Dark Knight and Seven in this concept of you know the plan. Uh, the concept that society will tolerate horrid things as long as it's part of the plan. Part of the reason John Doe's character is so terrifying is that there's an element of deviancy to him and that we fear that deviancy more than we fear, you know, any other act of violence or sin or crime. It's the deviancy that terrifies us. And so there's that kind of overlapping theme with the Dark Knight and this movie. Now, where I think David Fincher uh, does a much better job in this film than Christopher Nolan. I think one of our closing points on the Dark Knight podcast was we were a bit disappointed that you get to the end of the movie and other than Two-Face, not a single character has changed. The motivations are the same. Batman certainly hasn't changed. You know, as we said, he just decides I'm going to go keep being Batman. Everyone's just going to be mad at me for it now. Despite two and a half hours of action and, and occurrences, nothing in him fundamentally changes. The same is not true of this film. I think what we're watching with these two, you know, the main characters, Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, they are narrators. They are the, the, the lens with which we see this corrupt uh, world. But they themselves are questioning both themselves, their view of the world. They're allowing the things that they see before them to change them or to at least make them reconsider how they viewed the world, how they viewed their jobs. Because they both enter this film pretty hard-headed in you know, their own specific way. And by the end, they certainly are not those characters that they began as. Yeah, I forgot how good Freeman and Pitt were in this. Like, Freeman in particular is incredible. He's... The most depressing, his Somerset, Detective Somerset, is the most depressing man in the world. Everything he says for the first hour and a half of the movie or so is just like, you are the most Eeyore motherfucker in the world. Like, God damn it. Like, and like even the characters of the movie say to him, like, holy shit, Somerset, you are depressing and sad. And then How would you like Somerset to, like, officiate your wedding? Like... <laughs> That, like, he might be the last person you'd want officiating your wedding. I might actually want John Doe officiating the wedding before <laughs> Somerset. As long as he promised not to kill anybody, he'd be a little more, yeah, he'd be a little more upbeat and yeah. clever. Ugh. No, Somerset is such a downer. And then Pitt is, uh, you know, Pitt's a jock hothead. And, you know, he they, they make a very, in, in another great way about that Fincher and, the, again, the writer do is they make it clear pretty early that Somerset is a, uh, wizened, but beaten down and depressed and just done with the world cop. And Pitt is from a small town, married his high school sweetheart, and 
comes in and is just a ball of energy and wants to solve things and yell and you know that we were watching the movie like he disrupts crime scenes like he's very haphazard to a like legal and societal fault in the beginning of the movie like he just doesn't give a fuck he thinks he's cock of the walk and can do whatever he wants and like you said it's so like it's the opposite of the dark knight in which batman was just sort of just batman in that he was very firm and steady and boring and everyone played off him and this your two main characters your two leads your two protagonists are so active and so and like learn from each other learn from the world learn from the villain like they learn from the the only female character of note Gwyneth Paltrow's character like they all like the way they all interweave and and the little subtle ways in which they listen to each other and tell each other stories and anecdotes that lightly push their thinking one way or the other is just brilliant like it's, it's something I didn't think about before I watched this movie I thought it was a pretty straightforward crazy guy kills a bunch of people two cops chase him down and in between there's a lot of preaching and monologues about morality and such and then i was like there are so there are you know a dozen scenes in this of just small beautiful character moments where everyone in it is just plays their role to a t and gives these people so much life so much more than i remember them having so before i make my next serious point can we objectify brad pitt for just a moment that mean the handsomest man in, in possibly the world yeah, so the, I got. I, He's where not even that handsome in this. Like this is not. Okay, thank God. I thought this was going to be a hot take. I'm glad <laughs> you're with me. This is like bottom fiftieth percentile of of his hotness. So the hair is just like kind of gross. The front curl up '90s thing, just not into it. Uh, the facial hair is terrible. Yeah. But like, like that go sort of just, goatee thing. Yeah, just like like prepubescent, uh, very blonde, thin goatee thing. I'm not, I'm not into it. It works for like a, it works for like a Midwest guy who moved to the big city though. You know, like it does give me those vibes. Like he just doesn't know how people dress and look and he's not fashionable. He's just like some boring ass white dude who thinks he's really cool. Stop contextualizing this. Objectifying someone <laughs> removes all context. If we're going to objectify him, we have no context here. Like, I'm just saying. That don't, he... don't tell me that Legends of the Fall, he lives on a, you know, a ranch in Montana. I don't care about the context. He's just smoking hot in that movie. In this movie, not as smoking hot. I give it 25th percentile Brad Pitt hotness. Yeah, it's low. I don't. I don't have a ranking off the top of my head, surprisingly. But I will say, just I can think of a you know a dozen, certainly off the top of my head, in which he is a thousand times hotter. Yeah, Morgan Freeman agree. looks like you know he he's old now, but I would say the 20 years from this movie forward, he, he looks almost exactly the same. And he was probably what he's probably 45. He lo- he's probably 45 in this. He looks like he's 60, and then he looked 60 for 20 years, and it's great. Yeah, Morgan Freeman's never looked a day younger than like 53. <laughs> like Morgan Freeman's prostate has always been the size of a grapefruit. I just imagine. <laughs> Oh, that's great. He actually, well, wow, he was already, he was 60 in this already. Wow. Okay. Well, he looks young. I mean, he, he was looked, 60. Yeah. He was born in 37. Oh. So this came out in 95. So he was almost 60. He looks really good for that. Like, oh, never mind. I take it all very respect. So he, but to his credit, then he looked 60 when he was 60 and then he looked 60 until he was like 80. So yeah, yeah, totally fair. It, you know, it's funny you bring up those like little moments. And I think that the parts of the movie we actually found most uh, entertaining, endearing, are not the like, crime scenes and the little monologues that they give at the crime scenes or anything like that. It's those little moments of human connection. So, you know, it's something we, you immediately, anybody watching this movie immediately notices is how 
dreary, rainy, gross it all looks. It's this unnamed, just urban area of some kind um, that any, you know, every everybody who's ever critiqued the movie is brought up. Um, and then throughout the, the entire movie, you just see gross apartments, gross, cramped, poorly lit, uh, mildewy appearing apartments uh, that are just depressing to appear to be living in. And there's this idea both in this movie and also, you know, he did fight club. He seems to have this antipathy towards like modern urbanized human life. And that comes through very clearly in this film. But that being said, the movie kind of turns from the dreary to the slightly hopeful in that small human moment where Mills gives the phone to Somerset and it's his wife and she invites him to dinner and just the smallest human like the smallest act of human connection changes their relationship almost 100 i don't want to say 180 degrees that's taking it a little too far but gives just enough daylight for the two of them to start connecting and that scene of them having dinner together talking about nothing in particular it doesn't move the narrative in any way but it's a really cool scene of just the the slightest bit of human connection is clearly craved by all three of them they just are on this one, you know, this track of living in this urbanized environment. And it takes uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's character, who doesn't live in this urbanized environment, she's a transplant to it, to provide them that opportunity to have a human moment. It's one of those amazing movie scenes that serves dual purposes. A, it fleshes out the characters, as you said, gives Mills and Somerset a reason to connect through Gwyneth Paltrow's character, lets them just, you know, bond in a way outside of the job, which is great. But what it really does is introduce Gwyneth Paltrow's character, Tracy, to the narrative, make you like her, give her clearly a bigger connection with Somerset than Mills has, so they form a little bond that gets flushed out later in the diner scene. So then, of course, at the end, when her head gets cut off, you're disgusted. Because, like you said, it does give you this hope. It shows you that people talking to people, spending time with people, is what keeps society going. Loving that connection, having those bonds between humans is what makes this all worth living. Even in a world as dark as the Seven world, you can find those moments of light. But then John Doe cuts her head off and ruins everybody's life and just fucks it all to hell. And there's really no reason to be for at least the current period, if not very, very much down the line. So it's just, it's so good because so many of those scenes in other movies like this are manipulative, you know? Like you get the Paltrow character or you get this forced connection between the two cops and it all feels in service of purely the story and not the characters, you know? It feels like this has to be here because later on we need them to be friends so that their disruption or whatever happens to them has more weight. But this is just very, it's not light, but the touch is very light. Like the, 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 what it's trying to accomplish is irrelevant because you're enjoying the scene and the characters and the acting and everything about it. And it all just works. And like you said, I think the dirty apartments uh, point is a great one as well, because I think nice things going on in these shitty apartments make them seem even nicer, you know? Because you're like, wow, this place sucks. Like, where Pitt and Paltrow live sucks. But they still love each other. And you still get a couple moments where you see why they love each other and why it matters. And it's that hope for the sake of dashing it later. But it's also the hope cause to get you through a very dreary movie that otherwise is very dark and rainy and sad. Yeah, you know, Somerset's last line in the entire film is, I'm paraphrasing, but he quotes Hemingway, saying something to the effect of, you know, there's good in humanity and it's worth fighting for. And he says, I agree with the second part. And Gwyneth Paltrow's character it, it functions as this 
entity that reminds Somerset of the endearing parts of human nature. He's so surrounded by the evil, the apathy uh, of this urban environment. And here comes this woman from the country that doesn't live in this kind of um, dystopian, self-made dystopia of humanity in this urban, you know, unnamed city. And she reminds him of the beauty, the endearing nature of humanity that does, it does and can exist in, in one another. And he can't help himself, even with all he knows, when they have that conversation in the diner later. But he accidentally spills some hope out. Um, and he, he really, I think, probably surprised himself in how he behaved in that moment as well. And so, you know, the, the overlying message of this movie, I don't think we can break down to one or two things. I think there's a lot of messages throughout it. But I do think David Fincher does sort of fall on the side of, yeah, this this is all shitty. This is all dreary and ugly. We've made it so. Um, however, there are little bits of sunlight that we can cling to. Yes, I think that's very, very true. It's very true, and I think it is a nice departure from, like we said, Nolan's uh, worldview, which can be a little suffocating and frustrating. I also think the idea from Fincher and the writer, from Andrew Kevin Walker, to place this, as you noted, in a unnamed area is very good because I think what I think if you said this is New York, this is LA, this is whatever, I think that grounds it in our current world. And like obviously our current world for many reasons in 1995 and 2020 is terrible in many ways. We, I noted several of them already and it's it's not great in a lot of ways, but it's not the world of 7, you know? Like 7 is obviously what John Doe does is a little fantastical, but it's also just a even more dark, even more depressing sort of reality than the one we currently live in. And I think it is the way they separate it from our from an actual city and sort of it, it gives it a little bit of uh, wiggle room. It gives it a little bit of its own thing. So it can be darker. It can be drearier. It can, and it feels like a commentary on urban environments and society and all that without being a commentary on our society or our urban environments. Like, I don't think it is, it, it just doesn't feel so pointed. I think that would be a distraction. I think, I think people would, if this was about New York city, people would say, Oh man, David Fincher hates New York city. And I don't think that's the point. You know, like, I don't think it's like this one city sucks or this one city is good or society. I think it's just like, this is a, this is human beings have, incredible flaws and the sins exemplify many of them and like you said there's, there's obviously a crime element as well but if we're just talking about the the sins of a society they commit them often and i want to comment on them and the hope that is so frequently bashed down by the bad stuff without saying this time and this place are the culprits or the causes or the worst or like having even critics or fans focus on that side of it and say this is what he's trying to say. Like, I just think it's very, very smart to put in its own little abstract, sort of abstract situation and tell the story in a little bit of a sandbox. It just makes it it makes it a little broader and I think a good way where it's fiction, but it also is commentary at the same time. No, I, agree. I, I totally agree with you. I, I think this wouldn't have been as well done if it were about the Chicago police department or the NYPD chasing bad guys. And it's not necessarily an indictment on the, the idea of criminal justice or the extraordinarily flawed criminal justice system that we have actually kind of on the contrary. I do think it's more of a commentary on what we have allowed ourselves as a general society to become because we have abdicated so much responsibility to the systems of government that, that, 
you know, hold up our society. We are so willing to give up our responsibility to push it upon someone else, whether it's an elected official, a doctor, a police officer, a fireman. We will push that responsibility elsewhere. And the problem comes when, you know, I brought up earlier the concept of crime versus sin. No government, no uh, institution in society is perfect enough, strong enough, comprehensive enough to fully, truly govern a society. There is a requirement by the citizens of that society to also have these, we'll, we'll call them norms, where you know we all understand that law cannot be enforced every second of every day. And so there's social pressures that we all put upon one another. We hold one another accountable for small things every day of the week. We see somebody litter on the ground and we give them a dirty look. That's all part of this kind of social contract that exists as, I, I want to call it like the dark matter in with it, between the celestial bodies of the universe. This social contract that we have with one another that we, I think at least in Fincher's view, in this world he's created, which I think does mirror our general world quite a bit, we have slowly abdicated the responsibility of upholding that unwritten uh, social contract and expected these other systems like the criminal justice system, like cops, or you know, name your societal uh, steward that you wish, we want them to take care of all of it for us. It's not our responsibility anymore. And you see that play out with Somerset, some of Somerset's mono, uh, monologues where he talks about, we're just picking up the pieces now. You know, what function are they serving? And one of the similarities we see play out between Somerset and John Doe is this idea of why, what is the point of dealing with a society that has turned almost completely to apathy? What is the point of venerating it? What is the point of defending it? And what, what, what responsibility should anyone feel to help a society that will not help itself, that will not enforce, in you know, John Doe's views, a kind of religiously uh, themed idea of sin and, and goodness? But I do think it's, a, it's an interesting idea that, that Fincher explores. I think it is as well. And I think one of the things I like the most in terms of character development, along the lines of what you're saying and the similarities between Somerset and John Doe and then the ramblings of Detective Mills, they all have their philosophies. You know, that, like you said, they're, they're all relatively hard-headed at points of the movie. For most of it, at least, in, they're very firm in their beliefs if they're not harm-headed. But, but the movie makes it very clear that none of them are right. You know, like none of them, no, none of them are the the good person the the protagonist with the answers like every like John Doe is right to some extent he's obviously a a very uh, unwell human being who commits a lot of murders but he is not wrong in the ways he looks at certain things Somerset is not wrong that the world is dismal and apathetic and does not care but he's also so down that path that he's probably misguided Mills is optimistic but almost you know like a lunk who doesn't seem to know the world around him or has not yet felt the loss and pain that somerset has felt and that mills does feel by the end of the movie so i just think it does a great job of of like like we said it's very clear what a lot of the themes are and a lot of what fincher is going for but i also think it's it's very much a 
movie that rewards you for paying attention and noticing that while the characters say XYZ, they are unreliable narrators or they are rambling or they are broken or they are just unskilled or unknowing about the world. Like, I just think their flaws are readily apparent. And we talked about that a little with Heat. Obviously, in Heat, it's less about, I think, uh, what they're saying and a lot of times more what they're doing. Um, a lot of times in Heat, when they say things, that is them realizing what they're all about. And then what they do uh, undercuts that to some extent. But I think this is a great example of a movie where the characters, the conversations they have, you just, you see that none of, like, and, and the actors all play it very well. You see that none of them are remotely, you know, on the path of correctness. None of them are are mature enough or in, in the moment enough or in, in a happy state enough to look at the world with any sort of full clarity. Everything they say is through some sort of lens, and all those lens are broken to some extent. I think that's a really, one of, one of the best points to bring up for this movie is, I think one of the concepts that, it, I don't know if Fincher meant to do this, but it's something I took from it, is the idea of the human ability to create a narrative. So all of us, you know, we get through, we go through our days and every single one of us has some narrative we tell ourselves in small moments, big moments, uh, that allows us to get through the day by day, you know, the second by second parts of our lives. For many people, that narrative takes the shape of a religion. Uh, for other people that are not religious, that doesn't mean that they're exempt from the need to create a narrative. Um, you know, I would not consider myself a religious person. However, a lot of the parts of my job are difficult. And, you know, there's life and death and whatever. And there's a narrative I have to tell myself to get through my day when these hard things happen. And you bring up the idea of these flawed characters. And but they, you know, they believe what they believe and they're very open about what they believe. Each one of them has a distinct narrative that's played out that they're telling themselves. that's played out in the movie. So for Mills, he has this narrative that he is the good guy. He's a bit of a splitter. It's kind of simple. There's good guys, bad guys. The bad guys are insane. The good guys like me are sane and totally cool and with it. And the good guys hunt the bad guys and we do it because it's the right thing to do, goddammit. That is a narrative. I think that's a narrative a lot of people have. But he's not, you know, he is a bit of a meathead, but he's not dumb. He's not stupid. And he's smart enough, I'm sure, in honest moments, he knows that he's telling himself some bullshit every once in a while. Then you have on the other end of the spectrum, John Doe. He also, you know, discusses how he got fed up of being not seen and he was living in this apathetic society. And he also developed a narrative, but his narrative now took this form of this religiously flavored extremism, as it were. Um, and that narrative drove him to do something, you know, these evil acts of murder, just like Mills's narrative drives him to do what would seem to be something positive, being a crime fighter being somebody who tries to bring people to justice. But both of them are motivated by these narratives to do, to take some sort of action. And then in the middle, you have Somerset and Somerset appears to be someone that tries to be devoid of a concept of a narrative. He seems to pride himself in being able to see the world as it is. But the truth is one of the struggles of that character that you see play out is that he's yearning to have a narrative. He's yearning to not have to know the truth that he knows. He would, and that's why I think he he connects so quickly with Gwyneth Paltrow. Is she seems to be recreating in small ways. I don't want to over overstate that relationship in the movie, but in small ways, she's bringing back these memories of a time for him when he did have a narrative 
that allowed him to get through his day and, and deal with the grant, uh, you know, the world around him um, in easier ways. Absolutely. That's all super true. It's, it's, it's really wonderful how they're all fleshed out and where they're coming at things. One thing, one scene I think that sums that up really well, we can use this as a sort of excuse to talk about John Doe and Kevin Spacey. I'd like to talk about him mostly as John Doe and not as Kevin Spacey, the creepy, terrible pederast who should rot in for his crimes in some sort of punishment capacity. But in terms of this character in this movie that we did watch, I really, really enjoyed when they're in the car driving John Doe to the the final scene. Because, and again, in my head, I thought this was this this spacey monologue that seemed to me, like, again, from remembrance sake, as, like, uh, the John Doe character spouting out some dialogue that was, like, uh, would form, like, some fight clubian, um... Aftermath, like people being like, or like Joker in the new, in the Joaquin Phoenix joke, where everyone's like, man, this is, this guy's real twisted, but he makes some great points about society, and like, like, like misguided people taking it as like a, an actual prognostication or, or realization about the world that was truly in depth. What I really liked in watching again this time is, John Doe has a lot of monologue prepared, and is obviously very well educated, and has again a very defined worldview, but, there's a bunch of scenes where Somerset, you know, who's been, who usually sits quietly almost the entire time, he occasionally turns back and starts talking to John Doe and like pokes a little hole here, gives him a little jab here, does, or just says some very insightful little thing. And John Doe, I think almost every time this happens, has no response for him. Like he, he cannot really engage with a Somersetian type character with his worldview, because I think he, even he knows that it's a lot of prepared stuff. He's not an off the cuff guy. He's flawed. He doesn't have this all fleshed out. His instincts, every time that happens is he turns to Mills and he starts poking Mills again, because he knows that Mills is going to respond, is going to get pissy, is going to get upset, and is going to fire back at John Doe with some just aggro bullshit, just just because he can, you know? And I think it shows all of their roles so well. Like, again, Somerset is, Somerset probably shouldn't sit back as much as he does, but because he's apathetic and set in his ways in his own way, he chills. Mills can't help but get riled up, and John Doe has a bunch of great, has a bunch of seemingly good points, but they're paper thin when you really start poking a hole in them. Because he is ultimately a crazy person, you know, like we can, we can discuss how, what that even means, but he is an unwell person who commits heinous acts that because he is guided by something that whether society has deemed him unwell, like, you know, that's all again something we can talk about, but you shouldn't murder seven people. Like he's fucking crazy in, in that into, to be, to be Millsian and broad as well. He's crazy. And it does what his, his worldview does not hold up the way he thinks it does. Yeah. The, the, I think most telling line that uh, Somerset gives, and again, I'm paraphrasing here when he basically says the pride you take in this appears to be contrary to the idea of martyrdom. Mm -hmm. And that I think is the biggest call out between the two of them. Uh, John Doe is, is pick is trying to show himself to be a martyr. And there's a certain, you know, connotation of purity or a connotation of, of nobility with the idea of a martyr. And that's how he wants people to see him. But he can't help himself but show that what he actually wants is recognition. He says his sin is envy. And sure, maybe that's true. But his bigger sin is that he's a narcissist. He wants to be seen. And when I can't remember who's reading, I think it was Somerset reading his journals or whatever. What I think is clear about the character of John Doe is that he got to a point where he was sick of being invisible. He was floating through this, this sea of humanity not sticking out, not being special, being ignored, 
Um, and once that happened, he started to turn to anger, clearly. And over time, he convinced himself that the things he was doing in order to gain notoriety, actually he was doing for the sake of martyrdom, for something good, for something moral. And he wrapped himself in the cloth of, of kind of twisted religion to convince himself of that. But what Somerset is, is calling him out on is saying, no, dog, you're, there's nothing, nothing about a martyr is in you. You are a showman. You are somebody who wanted to be seen so badly and who wanted to no longer be ignored so badly that you turned to committing heinous crimes and sins uh, in order to gain that notoriety. I mean, that when he says that, when uh, John Doe says it in the car, that the things I've done will be remembered and puzzled over forever, that really shows you the most honest picture of that man's soul that you can get. Yes, absolutely. And from a movie standpoint, what I love about that a ton is it's not – there's again, there's so many movies like this or movies in general where – a character saying something like that is is the the movie telling the audience a certain thing, you know? The movie saying to everyone, hey, everybody, here's a thing you should be paying attention to and know about this and that. And what I think is so good about Seven is it's so earned. Like, when Somerset says that to John Doe, it's not him, it's not illuminating anything. For, it is illuminating to the audience, but it's illuminating in service of the characters. And I think that really is something, you know, that's the crux of all these things we're talking about, for me at least, is I just didn't realize how well how well developed these characters are and how much it enhances the the philosophies and themes and plot and everything about this movie. It just, I think it just gives it so much, even like a movie like Fight Club, which we talked about, which is a Fincher movie. Like, I think one of the reasons everybody glommed on to Tyler Durden and the themes of Fight Club are, are readily apparent as well. But it's also because, because Brad Pitt's character literally tells you his worldview in like, in like monologues that are basically like, Hey everybody, this is my worldview. And he says a bunch of cool shit. And everyone was like, Ooh, Brad Pitt's character saying some cool shit. I love it. But like it, it, but it's all, but it, it sort of overshadows the movie in some ways, you know, like it becomes about Tyler Durden's philosophy as opposed to Tyler Durden being a character in fight club who has philosophies, but those are in the movie. You know, like Tyler Durden is not a good guy. He's not a, he's not a hero. He's a fucking, he's a, a figment of imagination and B he's, again, he's, he's also very unwell. And so, I think what this movie does so well, and you know what I think Fincher does well in most of his movies, I think Fight Club is a is a bad example for him. It's I think it's true, but I think it just it just got it became something bigger than maybe he wanted. But I think Fincher does this very well in a lot of other movies is getting that across in 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 you and I talked about this in in small ways with intimately developed characters that that exist in a broader narrative and a broader story and a broader world, but it's really only about. In this movie, it's about four characters, and really, Peltro and, P- and Spacey sort of just, you know, are in different parts of the movie. But otherwise, it's, about, it's really about three characters at one time, and I think it does so much in getting these thoughts and themes and ideas across without preaching and without making it bigger than what it is. Like, it's very small scale, but it's about so many things, and I think that's a really impressive feat that the movie pulls off so well. Yeah, it's honestly, like, it. you know, you talk about... Uh having a movie kind of sit with you after you watched it, it's taken like a full 48 hours for me to kind of get my thoughts together on this, on this movie, because it does kind of touch on so many things that are kind of hard to think about, hard to put into words. And, you know, you brought up the, the scene in the, the car at the end where they're driving to go find, you know, what they thought were going to be two more bodies. You bring up the Somerset 
uh, John Doe interaction, which is great. It's really cool. I'm actually a little more intrigued by the I'm sorry, the John Doe and Mills interaction, specifically when he tells Mills, it's you know, Mills gives this meathead, you're insane, you're an insane person, and. I really love the response from John Doe, which is uh, it's easier for you to consider me insane or it's easier for you to see me as an insane person. That line and that interaction really stuck with me after the movie. Um, you know, not without getting too personal. One of the my research interests is in interpersonal violence and, you know, looking at why we have trouble finding empathy sometimes for people who commit violence. Um Part of it is this concept that we have in our brain, and it, it, it's also related to our tendency to otherize people. You know, we use that term otherness or otherizing oftentimes to describe people, you know, who are racist, who are sexist, who are xenophobic. But everyone is capable of otherizing someone. And in this case, Brad Pitt is otherizing John Doe. Mills is otherizing John Doe by calling him insane. And the reason he's doing it, and we already know, like, he is the wrathful one in the movie. There's something in him that knows that there is something, there is a seed of evil that's inside of him that, that is capable of growing into something more serious and taking actions which are immoral and evil. He has to know this subconsciously. Uh, nobody that has that kind of an anger problem or is that big of a hothead can't know that and, and have any ounce of intelligence. But anyway, when John Doe says it's easier for you to see me as insane, it's this idea that we oftentimes have trouble finding empathy for people because we're scared to. We are scared to admit that we are capable of whatever this other person has done that we are otherizing. Um, and so what he's saying to Brad Pitt in this scene is, you know, you're do you're, this action you're taking of putting me in this other box putting me on another team, it's a selfish act because you're trying to tell yourself you could never do the things I've done. And that's a very human thing to do when in reality, every human on planet Earth, I don't care how much of a pacifist you think you are, every human is capable of some act of violence, some act of heinous violence. But we like to tell ourselves we are not. And we like to tell ourselves that it's only these other people that do that. And I'm not one of them because I'm not insane. And we put these labels on them that allow us to put them on another team that we could never be a part of. And that's the interaction playing out between the two of them in that car that I found quite fascinating. The thing about that scene, too, which is so good, and it's touching on it's just expanding on what you said, but, you know, we, we know that Spacey is a murderer and, again, an unwell person. We also know that Brett Pitt will kick down a door without a warrant and pay a homeless person to fabricate a statement so that he can, you know, which is again, breaking a crime, but it's also lying. It's also being incredibly deceitful. It's also, you know, going behind his, his oath as a police officer at that point. And we also know that what Kevin Spacey is saying is true that if Brad Pitt, if, if Mills had five minutes alone with Spacey in a dark room, he'd beat the shit out of him. Like, of course he would. Like, so that scene in a certain way is, is definitely asking, you know, Spacey's is crazy. I'm going to say crimes for lack of a better word. Spacey's crimes are immense. Pitt is incredibly capable of committing certainly not probably um, that immense of crimes at that moment, but but certain crimes nonetheless. He's certainly capable of doing. We've seen him do several bad things. We know he's not sacrosanct. Like you said, we know we know everyone realistically is not sacrosanct. So it's such a fine line at that point. Like 
what what yeah you're calling me crazy what is crazy like you're not using a psychological definition of the term you're using a societal definition of the term and that is is modifiable and also defined by you like how do you know why why are the crimes you committed not have not been deemed insane why is a police officer breaking the law why is that not insanity like you are the supposed to be the protector of society and if you are betraying society shouldn't that be somewhat considered insane as well like why would we why would we give someone that power and if they abuse it that's like one of the worst things in theory you could do and I think the movie again doesn't doesn't shout that from the rooftops, but certainly you know in its, its own way it makes it very clear that this guy you know you you act like you're a saint just because you're on the side of good. Like what is good? What is bad? What is crazy? What is sane? Like this is all shit you made up. Like and again and and the part I like is that he is unreliable and he is unwell and insane in some ways. But but he but he but he sees enough doubt and the movie has planted enough seeds up to that point of doubt for it all to come together and for there to be a lot of validity in what a a serial murderer is telling you as an audience and i think that's a a perfect stroke there well and i'll i'll answer your first question or one of the questions you just posed that the movie brings up which is well well what is insane uh i think one of the answers the movie gives is that insane can simply be that which we don't we, we can't explain right we are more afraid of as i mentioned at the beginning of the podcast humans are more afraid of the deviancy than the act we are more afraid of things we can't explain than we are what the act itself really was. And again, you know, you get back to the, the Joker line, you know, you blow up a bunch of soldiers or a bunch of gangbangers. Nobody's terrified because it's part of the plan. Same concept here. We fear John Doe, not necessarily only because he murders. There are a lot of murderers out there. People die every day. We don't carry the same level of fear uh, for the perpetrators of e- equal crimes. What we are afraid of is that we don't understand it. There is something deviant about the way it happened. We logically understand the concept of, you know, a a drug deal went bad, and so the cartel shot seven people. It's heinous, it's horrible, but we wrap our heads around that idea because it's become normalized for us. But what John Doe's done in, in the movie is, even though he would have the same body count of seven people, or I guess six, uh, as the cartel, we somehow become, you know, the nightmares we have at night are of John Doe, not necessarily the everyday violence that occurs in our world surrounding us. And it's because of this idea of deviancy. And deviancy is something that humans simply cannot stand. And so that is kind of a, you know, armchair psychologist answer to your question, not breaking out the DSM-5, of how we colloquially, at least, define what insane is. Insane is the inexplicable. Insane is the act that we, as an individual, can't wrap our head around the motive of. And that's where insanity, you know, that's where this idea of insanity comes from, at least in the mind of Detective Mills. The other thing I'll mention about what makes the character of John Doe so scary, other than the deviancy, other than the misunderstanding of the motives, it's also his meticulousness. You know, I had mentioned to you before we started the pod, one of the scariest things I ever saw uh, when, uh, you know, about the Holocaust, you know, obviously the the concentration camps and the film you see and everything you read about it are all horrible and heinous. But I have to say the thing that was like the most chilling to me, the most terrifying that I like laid up in bed thinking about the most is when I went to a museum and saw they had recreated what uh, the, the filing system 
of the SS or any of these uh, Jewish hunters look like. And it was this pristine, well-organized, meticulously cultivated, organized system. And there's something terrifying about the idea that human beings have it in them to do these meticulous acts of, of barbarity. Uh, that is a terrifying thought. And so I think that's the other part that's almost contradictory to the first part of, of John Doe is that it appears that the things he's doing have no motive or we don't understand the motive and that scares us. Additionally, we're scared by the meticulousness with which he, he carries out his crimes. It scares us to think that the full power of the human mind can be rendered to do something so heinous. That's exemplified when you see his uh, thousands of notebooks with 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 rambling in them, and it's I think it's exemplified in that last scene as well that he like he's that you've seen we've all seen plenty of serial killer shows or documentaries or movies where the serial killer is they find him or her most I think it's almost entirely him there's probably a couple hers in there but almost entirely male and they have these manifestos they have these screes they have these ideas they are unwell in certain ways I think one of the things that Spacey does really well in that scene is he is able to like be sort of funny and be sort of quippy like he's not he's not militant you know he's not he's on a soapbox and he has a monologue but he can also just sort of be a sort of quirky kind of funny crazy person you know like i think it's it's really good like because i think that's even scarier too like i think like you said just the act of just so many things we're comfortable with like we are uncomfortable with this guy because he commits these deeds and we don't understand them and they're deviants i think it's also so uncomfortable to see someone who commits those deeds and is so meticulous and we've been led to believe is this you know psychotic committed person and then he's sort of just like a a quirky charming bald guy you know and you're like oh my god like not only is this guy unwell and rambly and 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 you know and and has a his whole this whole philosophy that he's following of murderousness like he can also just sort of talk to you you know <laughs> like he can also like he can make threats and he can dip back and forth and he can like and i think that's even scary cuz like that just further reinforces this is just this is some guy, like you said, it's, it, it could be so many people. He's smart, he's calculated, that part is hard to fathom, but he does, basically plays him like a pretty regular person. Like, again, he's got some, he's got about, he's got 30 second, 45 second little rant he goes on, but otherwise he's just a guy, and I think that is uh, even more frightening. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think his, the blandness of him is part of the, I think, brilliance of the character that, you know, and he says it himself. How many days has he, you know, lived on this earth where no one noticed him? Um, but yeah, I, I don't think it could have been played any other way. I'm glad it was depicted and played as as a bland character that kind of, uh, I guess, transformed into something more terrifying. Yep. So I got a few points here before we wrap up. Uh, fun things. First off, I think you should know this: at the 1996 MTV Movie Awards, the most desirable male was Brad Pitt. For seven, so we don't. Wait, think wait, wait, wait! Oh, that's horseshit. We don't think he's that hot, but the teens in 1996 rose up and said, "Brad Pitt is hot. We want to give him an award for being so hot." No, this is the this is the collapse of society. The moral bankruptcy that Fincher's talking about in this film is a society that thinks Brad Pitt from Seven is the hottest man of that year. Do you want to know? You want to know who he beat? I'm gonna give you some names. You're gonna be unhappy. Oh god, I'm gonna be fucking furious. So most Sorry desirable male winner: Brad Pitt in Seven. Uh, runners up, Antonio Banderas in Desperado. Antonio Banderas is ten times as hot as Brad Pitt in Desperado. <laughs> Mel Gibson in Braveheart. Uh, we'll, we'll ignore him. <laughs> and Val Kilmer, Batman, Val Kilmer in Batman Forever. 
It's Banderas, man. Are you <laughs> fucking Banderas. kidding me? That's not, it's not Keanu Reeves. I've never seen a walk in the clouds, but Keanu Reeves and something called a walk in the clouds. I don't know what that is. I don't know. Keanu's kind of like, he's like a cute puppy dog kind of handsomeness, but Banderas is just sizzling. And that whole movie is about what a fucking sexy, cool guy he is. Like that, you know, Braveheart is not, is not the hot, Braveheart is a weird Mel Gibson. Like Mel Gibson's much hotter in other movies and he's also a crazy racist. But yeah, Banderas, I know Seven was a hit movie, but Banderas is the clear smoldering. The category, the category is most desirable. That's the question. Yes. So when I hear that, I think, which of those characters am I most saying, just, you know, take me now? Yes. And it's Banderas from, from Desperado. But the teens, like, no. it is, this is the teens, though. The teens probably don't. Antonio, women want to fuck Antonio Banderas. Girls don't want to fuck Antonio Banderas. You know, I think, I think he's a grown ass man. I think a hot Latino guy. I think he probably would appeal to a slightly older demographic than teens. I Maybe mean, I'm generalizing there. I just think yeah. I do think, and I, like we said, I do think Brad Pitt in this movie is looks young on purpose. So I do think that he is appealing to like a 15 year old girl. You're gaslighting the people right now. <laughs> My other final point, and I want to say this because we talked about it when we were watching. As we got to her big scenes, we were saying like, oh, Gwyneth Paltrow, like, man, do you like her? And we both sort of agree that she is really not that great. Like, I like her in Royal Tenenbaums. She's fine as other things, but she's not either one of our cup of tea, we thought. But she is great in this like she really doesn't have a ton to do but once like she has two big scenes both basically involving morgan freeman's character and she's great in them like it's for like 15 minutes of screen time it is maybe the best gwyneth paltrow performance there is i do agree with you that like i've never been a huge gwyneth paltrow fan she's one of these you know actresses or actors that everyone just kind of says oh they're a great actor they're a great actress and it just kind of rolls off their tongue I have never really felt she's a great actress. Um, there's really, other than maybe Shakespeare in Love, there's nothing she's been in where I've walked away like, God damn, that was a spectacular, bone-chilling performance by Gwyneth Paltrow. But I will, I, I do agree with your point. For somebody who's in the movie for maybe a total of six minutes, seven minutes, she really does knock it out of the park. And her, I would actually say, bang for your buck, she has better repartee with Morgan Freeman than even Brad Pitt does in this. Yes, I would agree. Their scene, their scene together in the diner is maybe the best, not yeah, the best scene in the movie, but certainly up there. And I think not what I remembered it being. I, I thought it was going to be fine, and it's it's powerful and emotional, and really does does so much to make the movie to bring it all together and give those characters a lot more meaning. So, Chris, do you have any do final you, thoughts? Uh, good. Just a quick question: Do you think this is Fincher's best movie? Good question. No, I don't. Social Network, which I watched recently, is probably my favorite of his, and I would also say his best. But I will say this is right there. I'm going to pull up his filmography right now and then give it a thought. Do you? What do you think? Do you find it to be his best? No, this is going to be a boring answer because I agree with you. I, I do think Social Network is probably my favorite venture film. I think Zodiac is actually better than this, too. I really, really enjoy Zodiac as well. Ah, gosh, I have to rewatch Zodiac. I haven't seen that in a while. It's a crime movie. I, we, could, we could tuck it at the end of this. We can do a Fincher double feature. We can do it right after we do Heat 3 and Dune 2. <laughs> this is very good. Like I said, I was so impressed. Like, Fight Club is, is good, too, but I think... 
like I said, I, I really think Fight Club got got caught up in like the dorm room poster philosophy yeah. narrative, which is in the movie, but is not the point of the movie. I think if we watch Fight Club again, we'd feel somewhat similarly that it's better than what we remember it being or what it is portrayed as. I think this is just I, I thought it was something a little different in my memory, and I don't think it's a five star movie. I don't think it's you know, but I think it is truly, truly great and holds up way more than it should. Like I think it could be dated and stupid in a lot of ways, and it, it somehow really is not. Yeah, my final thought, I think, the thing that I took most from this movie, and it is a movie that is, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I'm, uh, uh, I guess, what's the word I'm going to call it? I don't feel like I'm being pretentious by, by spitting out all these questions that I think this movie, this movie proposes, because I do think that's the point of the movie. I do think that's a deliberate proposition of a lot of these questions. But I will repeat, I think the thing I took most from this is Fincher's depiction of the decay of the connective tissue of society, this idea of the social contract, and how he appears to believe both in this movie and very clearly, I think also in Fight Club, that there has been a decay of that connective tissue um, that's outside of the bounds uh, of government or, or structure. It's just human being to human being, human connection on a daily basis that appears to be the thing that is eroded away in Fincher's mind. And that's what I take most, uh, I, I think, from this movie. Uh, final question for you. Uh, are Lee Emery better performance in this or Saving Silver Men's Coat? <laughs> we did not talk about Arlie Army. We didn't talk about a bunch of the fun character actors that are in this, all of which are in it for about, you know, again, five, ten minutes. Arlie Army, Reggie, Kathy... Richard Roundtree, Mark Boone Jr., John C. McGinley, a ton of great guys. I will say Arlie Army is better in Saving Silverman only because the depth of his uh, his performance and role in that movie is so much is so much stronger. Coach is an indelible character. We'll never forget Coach. He's I can't wait till we have a two-hour pod on <laughs> Saving Silverman. Saving Silverman, the apex of so many careers. Jason Biggs, Steve Zahn, Arlie Army, Amanda Pete. Neil Diamond is just so many people peaked in Saving Silverman. If you thought I had hot takes on the depiction of the Harkonnens in 1984's Dune, just wait till the Saving Silverman pod. Well, what we can do, too, is we can watch the R cut and the PG-13 cut and compare oh. the lines that are changed, some of which are actually better in the PG-13 version. It's great. That's a half-hour conversation right there. Two full pods. <laughs> Two pods. That's right. Well, we, have, we, have, we have one more super depressing movie to talk about. Maybe we need to do that one after we do uh, No Country. I would be okay with that. I think that's a fun way to wrap it up. There's crime in that, too. They kidnapped Neil Diamond. What a crime. <laughs> oh, I think that's how we have to close this series. We can break down the crime of, of kidnapping Neil Diamond. That is an idea. And kidnapping Amanda Pete. Yeah. These are serial everybody. Yeah. So much crime. Oh, my God. Crime heavy. <laughs> All right, well, keep your eyes peeled on the In Real Deep podcast, fans, because you got another crime movie coming. You got No Country for Old Men. You got some other stuff from Andrew and myself. Maybe someday you'll have Saving Silverman. Who knows who's to say? We sort of did just define it as a crime film, so maybe we'll come back to it. We got a little time. We got Dr. Chris available, so we will see what we can do to bring all that to your ear holes. But for now, subscribe to the podcast, inrealdeep.com. A lot of good stuff there, all the old episodes. Listen to the old crime ones. Listen to our other hundred or so episodes. A ton of good stuff there. 
and plenty, plenty more to come. Chris, thanks for joining us. Good stuff. Great to talk about Seven. I think it was a very dark movie, but we added some good levity to it. And uh, we made it pop, and it's a great film. So it was a fun one to talk about. It was my pleasure. Happy to do it. Absolutely. And thank you all so much for listening. We'll be seeing you further on up the road. Banderas is hotter. Adios. <laughs> ha, ha.